0: Think back to the last time you felt the sting of rejection. How did it make you feel? How did you react? In this episode, we explore the feeling of rejection. Listen as we share how it's affected our patterns of thinking and behavior over the years, even starting in childhood, and how we're learning to live with the feelings instead of drinking them away. Before we dive in, we want to remind you that we're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and LinkedIn, sharing all kinds of extra content, recovery tips, videos, episode extras, and more. We would love to have you join in the conversation on social media. You can find us pretty much everywhere at Through the Glass Recovery.
1: Welcome, everybody. This is episode 33. And we have a wonderful group tonight. We actually have three people on who have never been on the podcast before. Mm -hmm. So this is super exciting. It doesn't happen very often that way. But really glad to have you guys. We're going to do introductions first, like we always do. We will start with Becky. How are you tonight?
2: I'm good. How are you guys? Good, Becky. Really
1: good. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah.
2: I uh, founded SoberLife.love in January, which is how I met you guys. And I got sober June 8th, 2020, right at the beginning of COVID. And I'm from Vancouver, Washington, and I'm just, you know, loving life.
0: Awesome.
1: Um, So you and Steve are both COVID sober babies together, he did the same thing. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That had its own set of challenges for sure. And next we will go with Ben.
3: Yeah, my name is Benjamin Lerner. I am a person in long-term recovery. Uh, my sober date is uh, June 13, 2016. And uh, I'm a journalist. I'm a musician, radio host of Clean Jams every week on 102.7 WEQX, combining recovery rap recovery advocacy i write a weekly column called clean in the vermont news guide and i have an album out called clean that combines my love for classical piano and hip-hop together to tell the story of my recovery and i'm pretty active on social trying to spread the message of recovery i met y'all through tiktok big love to the tiktok recovery community benjamin a learner recovery on there and also IG and facebook but at the end of it all i'm just a person in recovery trying to do the best i can to let people know recovery is possible
0: yeah, I love your stuff, Ben. It's really good. I love your message.
3: Likewise.
0: It's relatable. It's uh, I'm a big fan, man.
3: Likewise. Thank you all so much for having me on. I've been stoked about this for a while, so thank you.
0: Cool.
1: Yeah, it's really nice to have you. And we will, just for our listeners, we will include links in the show notes for everybody that's here with website and social media and, and everything else. So make sure you check that out. And last but not
4: least, we have Andrea. Hi, I am 40 years old from Saskatchewan, Canada. While I don't have an addiction of any kind, I do struggle with mental health on a really deep level. So I can relate to a lot of the content that you guys share and all of your guests. So yeah, it's nice to know that I'm not alone. And it's also nice to hear your guys' perspectives on addiction. I grew up with an alcoholic mom. And so it it's really great to hear perspectives from from you guys from your shoes yeah my hope is that by continuing to hear your episodes that they can uh, content can continue to soften my heart so that i can just learn to forgive my mom That is amazing.
1: Mm -hmm. We're really glad you're here. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for being here and joining us and supporting us in this, this adventure of ours on the podcast. So it's really, really a pleasure to meet you.
0: Yeah. Thanks for being here, Andrea.
1: Thanks. So we learned in our last episode that negative emotions are the number one cause for relapse. It can be such a battle learning to cope with and accept emotions that are hard to feel. One of the things that causes tough emotions is rejection, so I thought we could talk about that tonight. How has rejection or even fear of rejection shown up in your life, and how is, how has that made you feel? What have you learned about working through it? Anybody is welcome to dive in, and we will take it from there.
3: I think a good prompt for me is that every single time that I felt the need to either escape myself through self-medicating through a substance or through an outside compulsion such as anything like validation, video games, I'm a late-stage millennial, so Pokemon cards, it was to offset feelings of rejection I had that came to me from outside that I amplified within myself. So for example, I would feel rejected in a social situation, I would withdraw, and I would seek out comfort in another way. And although it wasn't substances at first, that was the beginning of how both my mental health issues and my substance use began to escalate.
1: Yeah, I think we all started out with some kind of unhealthy coping mechanism. And I think even in our teens, I know I didn't really have access to alcohol or any substances as a teen But you could see the unhealthy coping mechanisms start and the unhealthy thinking patterns, too. If I felt rejection at school, I internalized that so deeply. And in a way, I want to say, like, rejected myself, rejected who I was, who I was even trying to become. I mean, that's that, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. That's when we're really just trying to come into our own and identify who we really are. And so if I felt even the smallest sense of rejection, I would – take that on as this means I'm not good enough. This means I'm bad. This means I need to be different. And I think I started losing myself and my identity before I even really started to find it. And that just affected everything. I mean, it snowballed. And then into my 20s when alcohol was available to me. And it was just a really easy way to run from all of that negativity, both external and internal.
2: For me... I I was the youngest of four and my siblings did not want me or like me and want me around, but they were stuck with me. So they made me start drinking in order to, you know, not tattle. And for me, I never was wanted or liked or anything. So I found that, you know, I really liked the alcohol. And I mean, that was my escape, you know, from the get go, and then going to school, not, never fitting in, you know, just throughout life, always, you know. And I always had that, and now finding myself, I got sober at fifty, and not knowing how to act, not knowing how to feel, not knowing what a real feeling was, I, you know, ever. And wow, and dealing with it now, sober. It doesn't come as often because, you know, you you use the tools that you're given and you learn and I find myself, you know, sometimes it'll hit me before a social event or something where I'm scared of not being liked or wanted and getting that rejection feeling and, you know, just trying to push through and and feel that feeling. It's, It's really difficult.
0: Go ahead, Andrea.
4: I can relate to that. I thought about this topic earlier, and I would have to say that rejection is probably one of the biggest parts of the center of my being. Um, And with it comes a bunch of other feelings and and thoughts. It definitely shapes how I think about myself and my my worthiness. So it uh, definitely is huge for me.
0: I'm listening to you guys talk about rejection. And the first thing that comes to mind is maybe not even just growing up, but before I felt like I had enough self-worth to actually say that this is what I liked, or this is what I thought about this, even it was say hockey team or movie or whatever it was. Like I, I can remember having conversations where for me, uh, I'm not much of a reader, so people would be talking about books, and they and, and I would be smiling and nodding like I knew what the hell was going on, and I had no, absolutely no clue, because I didn't want to say that reading wasn't my thing when I'm sitting inside of a group of, of people that read, right? Before I say anything, I'm already feeling the rejection before that happens, because I'm telling myself a story that doesn't already exist, right? Like, I could be accepted for that, and then maybe be explained in a different way, but I want to feel included. So to feel included, I have to essentially abandon myself and say, okay, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I get that. Yeah. That was a good part. Like, I have no idea. I like, I've done that multiple times when it, even when it goes to like a color, it all depends on what where my self worth is sitting at that time. And in the addiction, it wasn't there at all. Even before that, it wasn't there very much to begin with. So, and and there would be times where I would agree with something and then my reaction to it would be like anger. I would either try and get back at them or try and have them feel the same way that I feel just because, like, I don't know what to do with it. That's that feeling of discomfort that Ben was talking about, right? Like, what do you do? I either recede or, or I show you that externally in a really unhealthy way.
1: Yeah, and how much does that, the the fear or that that feeling of being excluded have to do with rejection and all of that. When I was first thinking about the topic of the of rejection, I was thinking like the fear of rejection and but that's been a a running theme in my life is feeling excluded and not feeling like I fit in and not feeling like I'm a part of any group not even just the in crowd but I mean all through high school and then even in my 20s I never felt like I belonged and so I think that is that's kind of a a major part of rejection I think and probably really shapes who we are and how we feel about ourselves
2: yeah and even you know at work I find myself feeling on the outs when I'm really not it but it it's It's just our minds are just, you know, or my mind, shall I say, is I'm cuckoo about things like I'll let something go. I'll get one thought and then I'll have just like you were saying, Steve, I'll make this whole story up on, you know, oh, they had this planned. And like today, my boss and. My co-worker went to a funeral, but I wasn't invited. And I'm like, well, I really didn't know him, so I have to talk myself off the ledge, you know? Like Becky, what are you thinking? Like you didn't even know this person. Why do you want to go to a funeral? But it's because I felt left out, and it's just stupid. Like I had to laugh at myself today. Yeah,
3: I've always been a chameleon. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. What I mean by that is this is where the convergence of the substance use and my mental health issues and my people pleasing tendencies and my rejection coping all comes in, in a kind of entangled knot, uh, is I really related to what you said about hearing someone talk about something that was valuable to them. And, uh, my father's friends and he were very, This is going to sound pretentious, but so be it intellectually charged people. And they valued books and they valued the exchange of ideas. And when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, my dad would basically pre-brief me before we went to any dinner party. And he'd be like, this is what this person does. This is what this person does. And his aim was to have me present myself as this precocious child that was an extension of his intellectual worth. And what it taught me to do is that every single time I would go to a party or I would go to school. Even though I was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder from an early age, I would look around the room in the same way. And I wouldn't be good at looking people in the eye. I was never good at naturally connecting with people. And that was its own source of rejection, that I didn't feel that empathy. I always felt like I was on the outs. But I used the same thing that isolated me from people in terms of my neurodivergent mind state, that self-imposed prison I had, as a kind of supercharged laser tool. For me to isolate everything that from a superficial level, people appeared to value. And I would chameleon myself even on a micro level from click to click, from person to person, not being myself, just being a AI, artificial intelligence in my human mind version of what I thought they would like me to be.
0: Mm -hmm. And It
3: was exhausting. But the reason I did it, that whole reason was because I was so afraid of the same way I sometimes disappointed my dad. I could see it in his eyes when I embarrassed him at that party. The same way I would feel bad when I said something I thought was really funny and started laughing and no one thought it was funny in a friend group. I hated that so much that I either drowned it out with substances or I chameleoned myself to the point I wasn't even myself anymore, both getting out of myself with a lie, one a lie with the substance, the other a lie with the behavior. But as I progressed, it just came together and my lies and my addiction and my fabrication and my people pleasing tendencies all just coalesced.
1: I feel that in my soul. I was so good. And honestly, it's still something that. I kind of have a gift. I can read people and I know what they're gonna like and I know what they're gonna want and I know how to fit in. Like I'm really good at fitting in. And it's dangerous because as soon as I start fitting in, I stopped belonging. That's something that we've, whoever's read Brene Brown is probably familiar with, but the difference between fitting in and belonging and fitting in is becoming exactly who they want you to be. And I've been really good at that since I was a little girl. And, you know, with my parents, with my teachers, with the other kids, with the kids in the dance classes and the kids on the cheerleading squad, and I could be anybody. I was one hell of an actress. I still am if I let myself. And to be who I really am and show up authentically is terrifying to me because I lost whoever that was that I, I naturally, authentically am so long ago. And sobriety has led me to start discovering that. And authenticity is the foundation of everything that is my recovery and showing up authentically and letting people really see who I am is terrifying, but it's also the only way that I'm actually going to be accepted for who I am and actually feel like I belong. Mm -hmm. So the relationships that I've made in recovery are the most fulfilling relationships and friendships that I've ever had in my life. Probably the only real friendships because I'm showing up as my real self. And that has been huge for me. It's very healing and it's done wonders for my self-worth. And it has also taken an incredible amount of courage to get to the point where I feel
4: like I can do that. I can relate so much to that. Yeah, my my rejection happened as a little girl, just trying to belong uh, in my family, and yeah, always trying to win that love and just never really getting it. So yeah, the the chameleon, one hundred percent, just try to fit in yeah, just to be light. I actually, uh, like I'm in the process of finding out who I am because I really don't know. I'm 40 years old and I have no idea. Yeah. I need to love myself first, um, and be okay with who I am. So yeah, I have a lot of work to do, but, uh, I think my biggest thing is I have to squash the lies with, with the truth of God and that to see myself in his image and yeah, that, that I'm okay with the way I am. And yeah, I can relate so much to that.
2: And what you were saying, Julie, about the friendships, you know, I never knew what a real friend was until I got sober. And it's, you know, they know me and they accept me for who I am. And I don't get the, you know, the feeling of un being unwanted. And, you know, you know, you're wanted in your love. And um, it's, it's amazing. Like, I never thought at 50 years old, that I was going to change my life like this, you know, like I have friends, like my husband, sometimes he will be like, you know, who are you because I'm doing things with my friends, like, I just celebrated a birthday, and they took me out to dinner. And it's like, ever, and we've been together for quite a few years. And that's never happened before. But you get that when you build authentic relationships. And it's just amazing.
0: What happens when you start telling the truth?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You stop hiding. Yeah. Stop hiding those bits of yourself. You stop trying to fit in. And that's why it's so goddamn scary. Because Mm. for so long, playing the chameleon, which is basically living a lie. And then you're like, okay, I am going to tell the truth. And that first little bit of truth is absolutely terrifying because I don't know about, I'm sure any of you can relate. As soon as you start telling the truth, it's freaking scary and it ends up in tears fairly quickly, especially near the beginning. Right? Because what are you afraid of? I'm afraid of not, like, there's no way I'm going to tell the truth. I haven't told told, like, an iota of entire truth my story is filled with part truths little truths all over the place enough to just hide that and mask it with all uh, everything else to put on that show right but what happens there you start telling the truth there's a crap ton of fear that you end up facing and you know every small rejection one thing i did was i took it all personally every single little bit of it was personal. Every no, every insult, every whatever it was, it was all about me. Now, isn't that a little absurd? Like the world does not revolve around me. I didn't recognize it at the time, but Jesus Christ, all of it did. It all seemed to revolve around me. You hurt my feelings, right? It's everyone else's fault, but my own. Until I stop taking things personally, which is really, really hard. But if I understand that everyone's reaction is their own and comes from their own place, it's not really a reaction to me. It's a reaction to the way that they feel. It's their own reaction. So if I can own where I sit, and that doesn't mean that my reaction is going to be healthy, but at least understand where that is, I give myself a lot greater fighting shot at that standing at least in front of that rejection because at least I have my truth because one of the things I have learned is is, as long as I have my truth you can reject it or use it against me all you want you can't take that away
3: yeah that's wise I like what you said about the world not being centered around anybody that Pre Copernican, if I'm getting my history right, thing of, you know, the sun and all the celestial bodies revolving around the earth is a nice metaphor for how I viewed the whole world. And what's interesting is not to get too DSM with the mental health stuff, but autism, I believe, the Latin root auto is all automatic, self contained. I was contained in my own universe, be it due to my diagnosis, my chemical compulsion, my need to make things about me because I felt left out. But one of the things that made it a perpetuating cycle for me, looking back, is that I wanted to be the center of attention and get positive validation. Mm -hmm. But then, when people called me narcissistic for wanting that, it made me want it even more. Because I didn't just want attention, I wanted positive attention. I wanted—I didn't just want the world to revolve around me. I wanted the world to dance around me with twirlers and a parade and, and this beautiful display of fulfilling all of my childhood fantasies of belonging and everything like that. But what's been really liberating for me in recovery, which is my form of mental health journey, because it intersects uh, with all of my dual diagnosis stuff is that I wasn't a bad person necessarily for trying to make myself the center of everything. I was just creating a whole lot more work for myself than I needed to do. Because although it is somewhat selfish to want the world to revolve around you, wanting the world to revolve around you implies a certain, at least for me, implies a certain amount of control that you want. You want to control what happens in the world, but you've got to pull all those strings and that's a bunch of work. It never ends. And when I can kind of detach from my need, which is still there, but take a step back and be like, not only do I not control the world, I'm not the center of the universe, but objectively speaking, I don't want to be then I can get a little iota piece. I still have that inkling. I still have that inclination of wanting to control it. But when I can really look at it, just like a craving, just like I crave drugs still six and a half years sober and clean. Sometimes I crave that control, but when I can let it go, that's bliss. doesn't come every day, but it's nice. And then I don't care about rejection as much anymore.
0: They go hand in hand.
1: And what you said there, it, You can let it go, but it's still something that you battle. I think that that goes with all of these different things that we're learning and talking about here. I can talk a good talk when it comes to being authentic and showing up as my real self, it's still a battle all the time. It's still, when I start feeling insecure, the first thing I want to do is go back to the the perfect version of Julie that I know everybody is going to like and I want to make everybody happy. And it's a constant battle. I think it's something, it's so ingrained, all of these unhealthy habits and these unhealthy ways of being we can learn to recognize them and we can learn better ways of being but i don't think that means we ever and uh, maybe eventually i guess i don't have a lot of experience yet but i think it it's going to remain a battle for a really long time for me to not just fall back into the unhealthy mindset and i still even if i do feel rejection now it I'm going to I'm gonna hit the ground first. I'm going to get waylaid by it. I'm going to feel terrible about it. My self-esteem is going to plummet before I can remember to take a step back and then look at it with all the new tools and all the new perspective that I've gained. It's just a constant practice for that to happen.
0: There's a whole bunch of negative self-talk that when you... I hear you talk, Julie, and that's the first thing that comes to my mind is there's a whole bunch of negative self-talk that that wraps itself in, in all of that. And when you sit there and you let that happen and you understand that, okay, I'm in this crappy circle right now. And you can just navigate through like the minutia of all of that, because you know, if I give it time and then I put some air under it and I tell someone and I talk about it and I, and I give it the space, like I think there's something important about giving it the respect that it deserves and as crazy as sometimes we think that, I think anyways, like my negative self-talk, when it starts happening, if I can't turn it and spin it and put it a positive spin on it and get myself out of that, then I need to let it go. I need to give it to someone else. And as soon as I give it to someone else, it, it's selfish. I'm going to give myself some peace because... Even though I know it's not true or it's entirely not possible, it's still real in my mind. Those emotions, the feelings that come along with it, like that hurt, the pain, the twist, the whatever that is, that uncomfortableness, it still exists. That's that uncomfortable. And then I, I'm i going to run to get to my comfortable. Now I'm trying to learn from it instead of give it an opportunity to grab a hold and then really cause me to choose to react in an unhealthy way?
1: It takes, again, with the courage, Mm -hmm. any of that negative self-talk, any of that rejection that we take and we internalize it and the negative self-talk starts and all of those things, it's all shame, Mm
0: -hmm. right? Feels foolish. So we're
1: just internalizing all of this shame and thinking all of these horrible things about ourselves. And there are things we they're really hard to talk about. For me, when I experienced rejection, this just happened the other day, I experienced what felt like rejection. I crashed. All kinds of thoughts came in. I'm a failure. I'm, you know, everything that I'm doing is wrong. I mean, it was bad. And it's really hard to take those thoughts and feelings and share them with another person because it's all the things that we're so ashamed of. And for me... That has become the most important thing. And I think the most important tool for moving through all of that rejection and negative self-talk is telling somebody else, here's what's going through my head right now. Here's what I experienced. Here's what I'm telling myself. And just giving that to someone else and letting them hear it instantly, because I have wonderful people in my life, they're going to hear it. And they're going to not tell me I'm crazy, but talk me through it and show me love and show me empathy. And then also share with me what their perspective is, which is probably a lot healthier from the outside than what mine is inside. And I think that's a really important tool. But again, something that does take a fair bit of courage to start doing.
2: Yes, it, it definitely does. Um, but I found myself at a like a point where calling my friends it I mean, it was it was hard enough to admit that, hey, I I don't feel I don't feel right in any situation like I'm just like in this funk. And I had to come to a realization that I needed to I got a counselor and I started seeing a counselor because I have all this baggage from my childhood and I'm trying to be a normal person now and I don't have all those crutches anymore and so i reached out for professional help to help me sort all of this out in this head because i don't know how to do it in a healthy way other than just you know right now just staying sober but yeah i mean i i know how to do it in a healthy way i i i have you know the recovery that i that i work but at a point i get to this point where i'm going to give up hope if i don't so that's where i was at like i was i was at a dead end and so i reached out for help and so
1: that helps and there's a lot of wisdom in that and recognizing i'm going to run out of hope that's huge that is to recognize it and do something about it instead of letting yourself get to the point where you reach hopelessness hopelessness to me is the most dangerous thing you can feel in recovery or in life in general. And if that means talking to a friend or if that means reaching out for professional help in some way, or even medication to even some of those feelings out, whatever that is, there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of strength in doing those
4: things. When I mean, you talk about shame and that's huge. Shame is like all over in my life. And I know how empowering it is to be vulnerable and transparent, but it's so incredibly hard for me. I'm used to growing up as a kid, even till now, um, I'm used to everything being used against me. So I just really watch and shelter what I say. Yeah, it's uh, shame is huge. My mental health is um, its a work in progress. I have a lot of work to do to kind of discover who I am and to work through all of my neg- negative thoughts and emotions and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a lot to unpack.
1: And I think it's important to acknowledge that you're not the only 40-year-old that doesn't know who they are.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: we That comes up a lot on this podcast and a lot yeah. just in general recovery conversation that so many of us at 40 or 50 years old are just now even thinking about trying to figure out who we are. And it's also really important to acknowledge that that is a journey, and it continues and it's always progress. I don't think any of us ever arrive at the at the end of that. I think it's always evolving and I think we're always changing a little bit, but don't feel alone in that because we are all just now realizing, wait, I don't think I know who I am or gosh, I didn't even know when I started my recovery journey I had all these different hobbies and things that I enjoyed and I got to a point where I realized I don't know if I actually enjoy this at all or if I enjoy the fact that people tell me I did a good job when I do it like I had to break down every activity and really try to figure out whether that was a part of me or just a part of that show that I was putting on for the world and it's It's a huge undertaking. It's not
4: something that any of us are going to figure out quickly, I don't think. Yeah, I don't even know what my hobbies are. Yeah, I just do what everybody else wants to do. I, uh, yeah, I like to keep busy. Perfectionist and the people pleaser. So I just like to keep busy. A lot of it for years, first 35 years of my life, it was uh, keep busy. So if I keep busy, I don't think. If I don't think, I don't feel. So yeah, 35 years old and and my mental health, like that's really a turn and I really broke at that point and yeah it's uh hobby so much what what is that
1: yeah it's all about trying one thing and and really asking yourself do I enjoy this am I having a good time and then keeping it or letting it go and moving on to the next thing like it is just they call rig a lot of people refer to recovery as discovery
4: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I think
1: that's a really beautiful way to look at it mm mm-hmm.
2: It is. I remember in rehab, they wanted me to list out, you know, your hobbies, or it was uh, your relapse prevention plan, and they wanted you to list out your hobbies, and I didn't have any. And then I got home, and I started to fill my time up with baking and meetings. And then that changed to I discovered i liked paddleboarding and kayaking and you know all this other stuff but i did it on my own without you know anybody else influencing what i liked or didn't like like my husband like he's like you want to do what and i'm like i'm buying a you know paddleboard or whatever i'm gonna go do this and he was like who is this person but it's mm-hmm. crazy you know, now I I don't have any free time. It's all filled with stuff that I like doing. And if somebody asked me what my hobbies are, I could list them. But boy, two and a half years ago, I couldn't give you one thing. So pretty cool.
3: It's interesting to see how we evolve over the course of recovery. I have always been fairly aware of what I've been passionate about, but in active addiction, I didn't really think it would be possible to do it without drugs or alcohol. I thought that everything professional or otherwise was facilitated by the mindset of insanity that I reached during the chaotic consequences or effects of the substances that I was using. And then when I got clean and sober, I had to completely reorient every single facet of my life to rediscover myself one day at a time. And I love that discovery recovery. Mm -hmm. I love words. I've never, I've never made that rhyme connection before. I love that. That's great because I heard a great quote and I wish I had heard it earlier on from a uh, musician. And he said, one of his fans was one of those comment response videos um, that I, I go down wormholes of comment response videos on social media sites. Cause even though the energy is kind of a little, you know, angry, it's fun to fun and funny to watch sometimes. I guess that's my addiction and my lesser thinking talking, but he responded to someone <laughs> saying that um, he made old different type of music back in the day. And now he makes a different type of music. And the fan was basically making fun of him for changing up. And he said, In a much angry way, then I'm going to say it now. What, I'm not allowed to grow? I'm supposed to be the same person for the rest of my life to make you happy? And then he went on a really angry tirade, and I'm not going to share what he said after that. But before he went on that tirade, the, the pure message of not just having to change for people, but having to not change in order to not be rejected, really resonated with me. Because I didn't just think of all the times that I had changed and chameleoned myself to not be rejected. I thought of all the times I had held myself back from growth in order to not be rejected. And that really struck a chord with me because it made me think it wasn't just what I did. It's what I didn't allow myself to do and how I didn't allow myself to grow.
1: That is huge. I actually just wrote a post recently on Instagram kind of reflecting a similar sentiment where sometimes I feel like some of the people in my life almost liked me more when I was drinking because it was just easier for them. Like my growth is making the people around me uncomfortable. And I think it's really important that we give ourselves permission to keep growing even if it's not comfortable for us or for the people around us
2: definitely that that's powerful you know and then for me I didn't know what a boundary was I was such a people pleaser like I would do anything for somebody's a friendship or you know just if they would text me back I was so so lonely and sad and I would do anything for them but boy when I started setting boundaries oh my gosh and started saying no that doesn't work for me you know and and they started seeing like oh she has her own way now they don't call you know and and that's something right there like i there is not one person from my past that talks to me now because they don't like my boundaries and that i you know i don't roll over and give them you know whatever, do whatever for them. And, and it's growth and, and it's, it's great.
0: Relationships are a two way street. There's give and take on both ends. And when a boundary gets put up, it's okay to question the boundary. It's okay to ask why or where or how they're meant to, you put them up for a reason. And if somebody doesn't like them, that's their problem, not yours. You're doing that to protect yourself from something, something you'll learn that boundary will move as time goes on. You'll get more comfortable. Sometimes you set it really close and it's really tight and it's there for a reason. But you move those. I'm going to wrap this up now. I think this was a really great conversation about rejection because every topic we talk about here gives us the opportunity to be rejected by someone, whether it's social media. There's some of us that are on social media Becky, soberlife.love, Andrea, even with the family, Uh, Ben, social media, Julie and I, social media. I mean, you expose yourself on a fairly regular basis, but you don't get we don't get to where we are sitting here today if we're not willing to accept some sort of rejection like it is there regardless of what we do on a daily basis I think that's part of our growth. And so we talked about being a chameleon, rejection avoidance, taking rejection personally, which is a really big one if we can separate ourselves from that. Ben, you quoted a quote there that really nailed it on the head, but I'm going to summarize it a little bit differently. Recovery is discovery. Inside of that discovery is opportunity for rejection. The truth is our growth, and that's where it comes from. Anyways, thank you, Becky. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Ben, for your thoughts and your time tonight. This was great. Thank you. Thank
1: you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. you.
0: Awesome.
1: And thank you to our listeners for spending your time with us today and supporting what we do here. We would appreciate it so much if you would share our podcast with anyone that you know who might be able to use some sober inspiration. And be sure to check back next week when we release a very special episode dedicated to folks who have a family member or loved one who is in active addiction.